Hi, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Tim Bailey. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. Uh, the last time that I exhorted this body was from Ruth chapter 1, and it was quite a while ago. It was the spring of 2022. So here we are in August of 23, and we're going to go to Ruth chapter 2 today. Um, so I definitely owe you a little bit of a refresh. Uh, if you want to follow along uh, when we get to the reading, in your pew Bible, it's on page 222. Easy to remember, 222. But since it has been over a year, here's a recap of the first chapter. So Israel was in a time of, of violence and spiritual darkness when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Naomi and her husband Elimelech were caught in a famine, made a fateful decision to leave the land of promise. They left the country. They went to a different country called Moab. Naomi then experienced a string of Job-like disappointments. Right? First, her husband died. Then her two adult sons also died, but not before they each married women from a different faith. As a destitute widow, Naomi decides to walk the 50 miles back to Bethlehem empty and alone. But one of her two daughters-in-law insists on going with her, Ruth, who's probably in her 20s, through the incredible, life-changing power of sovereign grace, gives up her Moabite faith and chooses to be identified with the God of Israel. Chapters one, chapter 1's high point was Ruth's famous commitment to Naomi, which the King James Version captures so beautifully, where it says, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. So chapter 1 ended with Naomi and Ruth walking back into Bethlehem empty and desolate. And if you have found page 222 at this point, I'm going to read to you Ruth chapter 2. And out of reverence for God's word, I'd ask you to stand for this reading. So Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. 
Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epaph of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest 
in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. May God add his blessing to the reading and also the exhorting of his word. Let's pray. So our Father, you who make teaching profitable, we ask, would you be pleased to pour out the Spirit of grace upon this means of grace? Would you make us good soil to receive the good seed of your word? We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Sometimes a story grabs you from its opening line. According to Penguin Books, the most famous opening line of fiction is from Moby Dick, which starts with, Call me Ishmael. A famous first line closer to our theme today goes like this. See if you recognize it. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Yes, that is from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Today's chapter in Ruth introduces us to a new main figure, a virtuous, well-off, single man. And as we work our way through these verses, we'll focus on three facets of this multifaceted chapter. We're going to discuss a test for the powerless, and then a test for the powerful, and then we'll finish with the harvest that awaits. So chapter 2 opens with Naomi and Ruth destitute in Israel. No plan, no bright prospect on the horizon. The sense we get is that Naomi is sulking in her bitterness, and she can't think clearly about what to do now. I was recently reminded by a family member who shall remain nameless for my own protection, that, uh, who knows by heart the words from a 1980 Dolly Parton song called Working Nine to Five. And it opens with, tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. This is not far off from what Ruth did. Can't you see her waking up hungry in her new country, seeing Naomi, unsure what to do now? And so Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I'll go out into the fields and try to find us something to eat. I'll be back this evening. Ruth takes the initiative to do something. In desperation, unable to see how to get out of it, she decides to take the next right step. She humbles herself, a test for the powerless. She knows it's the start of the harvest, And she's prepared to go field to field asking if she can scavenge 
among what the workers don't collect. This is a role sanctioned under the Old Testament. Pastor Clement reminded us last week uh, from Leviticus, I believe, that was to be left to the poor. And I, I think in our day, it would be like walking up to a roadside cleanup crew and asking if you could follow along behind them and pick up the aluminum cans that they don't collect. And at the end of the day, you could exchange a bag of cans for maybe a few dollars. And kids, if you're thinking about picking up cans, in Utah, aluminum cans are worth 28 cents a pound. So you can make $50, you just need 1,000 cans. Okay. Yeah. So gleaning was prescribed in the Old Testament law as a way to provide for the poor through labor. But since Ruth lived in a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, she couldn't be sure that it would work. But still, it was the right next step to take, and so she tries it. And we read that God's hand made itself plain as she took that step. Verse 3 says she happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. It was unintentional on her part. And while she was there, it just so happened that Boaz came to this field to check on the harvest. Remarkable. There are many things in our lives that simply seem to just happen. But a Christian realizes that what is happening to you from a human point of view is not the entire picture. In the midst of our circumstances, in the surprises of life, we recognize and we rest in the knowledge that there is a sovereign God in heaven who in His hand Every moment and every detail of our life is orchestrated by to bring about His gracious provision for us. There's a reason why Charles Spurgeon said, don't miss this, when you go through a trial, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. You rest on our loving God's absolute sovereignty over all things. Ruth, finding help when she went into the field, is often how providence works in our life. In the midst of our uncertainty and the difficult situations we find ourselves in, we should simply take the next right step. That usually means considering guidance from the Bible, praying for the Lord's leading, asking advice from others who were wise, using your own common sense, and then importantly, you take the step. Take what seems like the right step and trust your loving Father to provide for you. It's often our gracious God who in the midst of that step acts to deliver you from the challenge you're facing. Now, the focus of our story shifts to Boaz. 
And we move on to our second point today, a test for the powerful. Did you notice Boaz's first recorded words, verse 4? When he arrives at the field, he greets those who work for him by saying, The Lord be with you. And they reply, The Lord bless you. Here's a group of people, even in the time of darkness they live in, who found a way to bring their faith into their work. Boaz, even in this time, remained a God-centered man. And he notices those in need that the Lord brings near to him. He asks his lead workman about the poor woman who is gleaning behind his reapers. And that soon leads to the first conversation between Ruth, the powerless, and Boaz, the powerful. And despite their many differences in wealth and status, in country of origin, in age, in sex, he speaks to her. That was remarkable by itself for the time. And he speaks kindly to her. What does he tell her? He tells her, you're welcome to stay in the fields, not just for today, but for the entire harvest. You're welcome to collect all that you need. You're even welcome to the water that the men will provide. And at the midday meal, Boaz invites her to join him and the others and shares their food with her. Ruth, who came empty-handed, was struck that a foreigner like her who had so recently come to faith in the Lord, could be so quickly included in God's covenant people. This reminds me of a story I heard recently about a man who had moved to the U.S. a few years ago. At some point, one of his new friends was chatting with him and said, we Americans, and the man's face froze with shock. He interrupted him, wait, do you think of me already as an American? And without much thought, the friend said, of course. And the man paused and then said, where I came from, no one ever would consider an immigrant to be one of their country, even if they had lived there for decades. Boaz welcomed Ruth, a new follower of the Lord, into his circle despite her being from a different culture and growing up in a different faith. Now that she was a follower of the true God, she was welcomed into the covenant community. Let's apply it to the church today. When someone comes to Christ, that new identity overpowers everything else about them. Shouldn't the church be a counter-cultural place in our polarized, unforgiving society. We talk about the spirituality of the church. That means its mission to make disciples. And our love for the body of Christ, these things should, should lift us and our thoughts of others above any other difference about them. Ruth's reaction to being accepted on her first day was to fall on her face in gratitude 
before Boaz's feet. Such a strong reaction. I recently became familiar with a British reality TV show. It's called The Secret Millionaire. I think it aired in the 2010s. And in this show, Kevin Green, he's a multimillionaire who secretly looks for people to help. And each episode, he spends weeks quietly volunteering with a charity, seeing their work up close. And after he's worked alongside them, getting dirty with the homeless, helping the infirm, he privately tells the charity who he is, and he hands them a check with a big number on it. The reaction from this unexpected kindness makes for a great TV moment. Often it brings tears. Ruth experienced such unexpected kindness. Her talk with Boaz was likely the first kind words anyone in power had spoken to her since she left Moab. Perhaps the ultimate test for a powerful person is not how they treat the great and the rich, but how they respond to the unnoticed, the poor, the struggler. We remember how our Lord put it in Matthew 25, don't we, from earlier in the service? Inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, you have done it to me, my brothers, my sisters. Ruth asks why anyone would treat her a foreigner with such kindness. And Boaz responds in verse 11, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Christopher Wright is an elder emeritus. That means he's retired, right? In the Reformed Presbyterian Church. In his study on Ruth, he points out that last phrase that Boaz uses about taking refuge under God's wings is found only here and in six psalms. Nowhere else in the Bible. All six of those psalms are authored by David, Boaz's great-grandson. Christopher Wright concludes, we might wonder whether this delightful phrase came to David through his own family originating with his great-grandfather, Boaz. It's a lovely picture of multi-generational faithfulness. What Boaz first noticed about Ruth was her commitment to Naomi, not any outward beauty. It would be simplistic of us to think that Boaz's motives were romantic from the start. We need to resist our over-sexualized culture and first recognize Boaz as a gracious man that loved God in his law. 
He wasn't just a guy looking for a girl. He viewed, he viewed this unexpected situation, a poor person showing up in his fields to glean as a God-appointed opportunity to show someone what the love of God is like. When Kristen and I were newly married, living in a new city, and almost as poor as church mice, after worship one Sunday, we walked back to our car, and we found a variety of very practical gifts on the hood and trunk of our car from our new church home that wanted to welcome us and help us in our new season of life. Likewise, Boaz not only says kind words to Ruth about seeking refuge in God, but he wants to give her a sense of what life under the care of God is like. He acts to represent the Lord to her in the way that he protects her and provides for her. He goes far beyond what a minimal legalistic reading of, of the law about leaving some of your crops for the poor would require. A pharisaical reading like that would not justly represent the character of God's love. And so he instructs his gleaners to leave some of the grain stalks out of the bundles, making it easier for Ruth to collect all that she needs. He tells his men to not rebuke her or embarrass her. Do you see what Boaz is doing? He's using the law of the Lord as a way to demonstrate the gracious and loving character of our God. He ends up heaping blessing upon Ruth and her mother-in-law. Notice that Boaz intentionally gave away more of his profits than he had to. You could say he had a greater vision about how to use his wealth for good and not just for himself. And I know some people in this church have a similar vision. Helping others in need, especially those of the household of faith. The Apostle Paul, in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, ended on a similar note. The Apostle's unexpected last recorded words to them were this. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's Acts 20, verse 35. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 129 says, a leader's power is received from God and should be used to bless those in their care and to provide for them all things necessary for soul and body. Boaz is a model of such a leader, and he represents the good man ideal. There is an anthropologist named David Gilmore who conducted the first ever cross-cultural study about manhood ideals across the world. And he found 
that cultures throughout the world share the expectation that the good man performs three P's, protects, provides, and procreates. That becomes a father. If such common grace is found among the cultures of the world, how much more should these traits embody a follower of God, protecting, providing, and as the Lord allows, becoming a father figure. If you're not a father, you can be a teacher, a mentor, a coach, an uncle. Christian author Nancy Piercy, in her well-researched new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, explains how in the West, this image of an independent real man took the place of the good man ideal, and then gradually all masculinity became denounced as toxic. It should not be. The research she covers in her new book shatters the negative stereotypes about masculinity. I'll just give you two statistics. Listen to these. First, evangelical Protestant men that attend church regularly are the least likely of any group in America to commit domestic violence. And then second, active evangelical men are 35% less likely to divorce than secular men. These stats are different from what we hear about Christians elsewhere. However, Nancy Piercy adds a major caution. The most likely group of men in America to commit domestic violence are those who identify as religious but seldom, if ever, attend church. And I want to be clear that any form of domestic violence is an egregious sin in the sight of God and ought to be prosecuted under the law. Young men, there is much confusion in our culture about what manhood is. I ask you Be careful who you listen to and what you believe. The best title for a sermon I've ever heard is the expulsive power of a new affection. I hope, young men, the biblical vision of manhood, one who provides and protects and is an active part of a faithful church, will have an expulsive power in your life that drives out anything opposed to it. Don't you want to be the kind of man who protects and provides for others? Older men, have you found a way to bring your faith into the work that you do as Boaz did? Do you notice the roofs in your field, that is? Do you take note of those around you who are struggling? Do you speak kindly to those in your charge and in your care? 
as Boaz did? Do you act with generosity towards them, especially when they are fellow believers? And fathers, when your race is run, don't you want it said of you, he was a good man and his children are even better. I pray you do. We don't look to Boaz for deliverance, however. He is a type of Christ and a good pointer to the one that we commend to you each week. So on to our third and final point for today, the harvest to come. When Ruth arrives home at the end of the day, she had enough food to feed her mother-in-law and herself for a week. Her mother-in-law says, where on earth did you go? Naomi learns that it is a relative that has provided so much, and immediately she rejoices in the Lord. She says in verse 20, the Lord's kindness has not forsaken us. With encouragement, first from Boaz and now from Naomi, Ruth gleaned in his fields until the end of the harvest period. Have you noticed at the end of chapter 2 what a different side of Naomi we see? Remember in chapter 1, it ended of her returning to Bethlehem, saying, the Lord has brought me back empty and made me bitter. But now here, at the end of chapter 2, she is saying God has not stopped showing His kindness to me. She's blessing God. Maybe right now you're more like the Naomi of the first chapter. And of course she couldn't see what was just around the corner in her life. We should hold on to trusting the Lord, taking the next right step, finding refuge under His wings. In this final point, I want to highlight a striking part of the story that may have escaped your notice. I picked this up from pastor and commentator Ian Dugid. It's the timing. Naomi and Ruth arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, which is the time of the Passover, quickly followed by the Feast of First Fruits. Ruth and Naomi had been filled with the first fruits of God's deliverance. It's the free gift of Boaz's grain. But they had not yet seen the goodness, the fullness of all that God had for them. That's still future for them. And at the end of today's chapter, seven weeks have passed. And now it's the Feast of Weeks, also called Pentecost, when the full harvest was brought in. And in a similar but so much greater way, Jesus, the most worthy man of all, delivered us from our emptiness when he died at Passover, rose at the feast of first fruits, but then what did he do? Seven weeks later, he poured out his spirit on the church at 
Pentecost, uniting us to His fullness and our eternal home. In other words, what I'm saying is these markers of time in the book of Ruth, in this chapter in particular, are not coincidental. They are there on purpose to encourage you. These markers of time remind you that God has turned your emptiness into fullness. And He has done so through the far greater Boaz in your life, through Jesus Christ, who is the worthiest of all men, who for unworthy sinners such as us became on the cross like an unworthy outcast so that we could be welcomed in and made full. This is what Christ has done for you. He has not given you just a little bit. He has given given you enough meaning, fullness, deliverance, satisfaction for you to share with someone else. Shouldn't we respond like Ruth, who said, Why have I found favor in your eyes, O Lord? Why have you taken notice of me? Answer, because of the loving character of who our God is. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of the suffering servant, tells us a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus deals gently with those who are hurting or struggling. Boaz instructed his servants to feed and to care for Ruth and especially not to abuse her. The Lord Jesus has instructed me his servant, and all of his servants here at Grace Church to care and to spiritually feed you and especially not to abuse you. If you don't know this Redeemer, would you consider that just as Boaz welcomed Ruth into his field and then into his circle, so Christ will not turn you away. He wants you to come. There is no need to venture into any other field. That would be almost an unforgivable mistake to make. Jesus is eager to pour out His goodness, His grace upon you to the point of overflowing because that is who He is and what He is like. Believe the Gospel, friends. I pray that each of us here have taken refuge under His wings. But if not, then maybe this morning you should. Young or old, anyone here who is unconverted, why not Take refuge in such a God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has such gracious love and provision for you. Why not taste and see 
how good He is. And then believers in Christ, I'd ask you, remember our Lord's words in Matthew 6, 38, where He says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That was true for Boaz. And it will be true for us. Sometimes a story grabs you by its opening line. But what matters most is how that story ends. For those in Christ, be encouraged. Your story has the happiest of endings. We taste the first fruits of God's deliverance now. We sang about it, and it's wonderful. And yet, there is a fullness of joy. There is the fullness of the harvest to come. Let's pray. So, Father, I do ask that we would not be like those who look into your word and then go away and at once forget all that we have seen about you and about ourselves. And rather, we pray that having tasted the first fruits of your glory, that each of us may long for a more full and perfect communion with You, we ask, Lord, may Christ be so fully formed in us and live in us that all of our thoughts may be brought into conformity with Him. And may our hearts be established in every good work. We thank you for your word today and we ask you to seal it into our hearts now. In Christ's name, amen.